Hello. Welcome to the May-June issue of FAA Safety Briefing Live. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Paul Prydecker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Susan Parson. Hi, Susan. Hi, Paul. How are you? Well, doing pretty well. It's Susan, it's, it's been a while since we've done one of these. I think the last time might have been back in uh, February, so it's nice to reconnect and have a chance to um, bring up some nice issues about the the article. So I trust all is well with you and the FAA. Oh, very good. We were glad to be back into our regular production schedule. As you know, we had to uh, skip the uh, March-April issue, uh, but sure. we, we made the January-February issue we talked about last time. We made that do double duty, um, but now we are happy to be back with May-June, and we are already have July-August in production as our Oshkosh issues. So, um, we're 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 rocking. <laughs> very very good. Well, you you and your team that put this magazine together always do such a nice job. I'm always interested in the, a lot of the design elements and the content is certainly good. So so let's get started and we'll do a little bit of housekeeping first. And as with all of these broadcasts, you do have the ability to earn wings and AMT credit for this program. The Graphic that's up on the screen now gives our viewers a chance to see which link to um, go to. And then there's a quiz involved in order to to get the wings credit. And Susan, what's your advice for how to work your way through the through the uh, quiz and get the answers? Well, um, as you'll see on the next slide, there's a link to the print copy, which is always helpful to have around. Uh, we've tried to put the quiz together so that based on the information you get in this program that you'll be able to pass the quiz with no problem and get wings credit. But um, part of why we do this broadcast is really to hopefully whet your interest and get people um, to get the magazine and take a look at it because there's no way that in an hour we can cover all the details that we have in all of the articles in this issue in particular, uh, what we can put on the cover slide is just a tiny little bit of what is actually in the articles. Sure. At, at, Susan, as we often do, this is a, a chance to discuss a little bit about the magazine itself, um, some of the key columns in it, and what the, you know, what the mission of FAA Safety Briefing Magazine is. So would you go ahead and review that for our audience again? And let us know um, what the main mission is. Absolutely. Well, we, we are not trying to compete in any way with what the aviation community press does because everybody's got a different perspective. And, and sure. uh, what we're trying to do is what the FAA can u uniquely provide, and that is to be the safety policy voice for the non-commercial GA industry or community. And so our goals are to raise awareness of resources, as you see there, to explain safety and regulatory issues. And the one that is nearest and dearest to my heart, and I think to yours as well, well is to mine we, as well. we absolutely want to encourage continued training. So um, as you'll see here, all of our departments, uh, regular departments, everyone has a mission statement and we try to organize thematically. And that probably leads into our next, uh, our next topic. Well, it does, and it's the subject of this magazine, which is performance-based aircraft certification. And I was struck by some of the previous broadcasts we've done, as well as you know the, the magazines that have come out. Many of them are really focused on the pilot, the mechanic, 
pilot certification, pilot training, safety issues related to us as pilots and, and mechanics. This one is all about aircraft and aircraft certification and some of the changes that have evolved actually starting in 1994. So what will we go through tonight? Well, we, uh, we're going to talk about the choices that you have. That's our what we call the umbrella or mini feature. Some of the choices that you have now as an aircraft owner, of course, this also applies to some of the manufacturers. And we'll talk about some of the policies that have come about, um, some you've heard of and some maybe you haven't. Um, with respect to the overall topic, though, several years ago, we did an issue. I think it was also a May-June issue. And we did it about production and certification of aircraft because whether you own an airplane, you're buying an airplane, and or you fly an airplane, there are some things that you really ought to know about uh, what makes it airworthy, what the terms are, and we like to try to provide a refresher on that. So in some ways, this issue is an update to the last one we did, but boy, did we have a lot to update. Well, let's, let's get right into it. The um, featured column that is um, by... Rick Domingo, jump seat, it, it brings up some terms that at one time or another, perhaps we've all heard, um, AMOC or alternative method of compliance is, is certainly one that we're familiar with in terms of, um, in some aspects because of training, but it, I see that it also applies to aircraft certification. But I noticed that there's some language about prescriptive certification and the alternatives to that, which we will reinforce throughout this broadcast. So what talk to me about alternative method of compliance, but also about prescriptive design and certification standards? Sure. So first of all, we just kind of borrowed the term. Alternative means that compliance is really a term with, um, with airworthiness and a lot of other things that sometimes the FAA has rules. And uh, But if you can show that you have another means of achieving the same end and the same level of safety, then um, that, that's, that's where the term is generally used. And uh, our, the executive director just kind of, bar who has an airworthiness background, by the way, borrowed that term for this column to talk about how it's, it's really a philosophy that the FAA has moved toward. Um, technology is changing so fast and rules take a long time to do, um, but, but the other piece is that there's no way that rules can really capture or imagine all the things that the community can come up with. So, so the FAA has moved toward a more performance-based, outcomes-based uh, way. So it's, it's sort of a, here's the end goal. It needs, the, the product needs to be able to do this. But you show us different ways of getting there, and we'll take a look at that. So, well, I, noticed so that, a, I noticed that the author made a bit of a play on the word by talking about alternative means of creativity. And that's, yeah. probably, at the, that's probably at the spirit of, of performance-based certification. Absolutely. It's all about trying to make sure that the door is open for all kinds of innovation. Because, again, I, I remember when glass cockpits uh, first started to, to come out in the 2000s, um, there were people who talked about trying to do an endorsement for glass. And I remember saying, well, you know, by the time we got a rule done, we, we could not do a rule fast enough to keep up with what was there right now, much less what's come out since. 
So we just, it, it's, it's all a, a recognition that we need to provide guardrails in a way, uh, if that's one way to put it, but still allow plenty of room for innovation and creativity. So that's what it's all about. Well, and your task is certainly a, a, a challenging task because certainly the rulemaking process can take quite a lot, quite a long yeah. time in, in various aspects of, of any kind of rulemaking. We know that that can take a long time, but, but there are reasons for it to take a long time. Yes. You, you have the safety of the industry on the, on the shoulders of the, of the agency, and you have to find a way to balance rulemaking and the importance of that, but at the same time, not impede the innovation and creativity that is part of the marketplace now. Exactly. So the next article is about you have choices. And this was an, act, this was an interesting walk through history for me. I, I certainly remember some of these dates. I just didn't realize it had been so long ago <laughs> that, that in a, a big change came to our industry in 1994, um, marked by the reintroduction of uh, Cessna aircraft into the marketplace. But that also set the set the pace for additional aircraft that are well known in the in the marketplace now. So 94 was a big year. It really was. Well, at that time, um, I, I actually I wrote this article. And uh, I, I was playing with the, the you have choices because I fly commercial a lot. And they always say sort of at the beginning or the end of the flight, we recognize you have choices. Thank you for flying with us. And this is one of those um, you actually do have choices now. If When I learned to fly in the early 1990s, when I started learning to fly, as I think I wrote in this article, I could choose between an old airplane and an older one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was nothing new out there. And then in 1994, um, industry, the community got together and really um, helped shepherd, spearhead through the Congress, the General Aviation Revitalization Act. And that opened the door to all kinds of innovation and creativity. And um, I, I always like to mention this. Uh, the per, one of the people who was instrumental in that was Ed Stimson, who tragically died a few years ago. But I had the privilege of knowing him. And I know how passionate he was about doing, you know, setting the stage for the kind of, of development. I, I think he would be very happy to see what that 1994 legislation has done. And as you see on the slide, it, it opened the door to, you know, 10 years later, the uh, sport pilot light sport aircraft rule. Then we started getting into uh, what we call NORSI, which we'll talk about Um and then the, the big one was the Part 23 reform, the performance-based regulations. So there are just so many choices and opportunities now. So I hope that, uh, I, I think Ed would be very proud of us. Well, there's a bit of um, background about the first 100 aircraft and the tail numbers yes. that you, you address, but maybe you'd like to amplify that just a little bit. Well, I, would, I wrote about it several years ago in the magazine um, in honor of the work that Ed Stimson did on the General Aviation Revitalization Act when Cessna reopened the 172 production line. The first 100 aircraft came out with the tail number Echo Sierra, um, and that was in honor of the work that he did. So I, uh, I wrote an article back then called The Legacy of Echo Sierra and called them Extra Special Airplanes. So. Uh. 
If nice. you see one, you should salute it. Very nice. And certainly beyond 1994, as you said, in, in 2004, we began to see, a, you know, the beginnings of the very large sport pilot and light sport aircraft. And you only have to spend a little bit of time at the EAA convention in Oshkosh or just walking around in a local airport to see the significance of that, because that opened the opportunity for many more pilots to, to join aviation and to uh, consider aircraft ownership. Oh, so yeah. it, it's just, you know, as I said, when I, when I think about when that first started, I, so much has changed. And in fact, we have kept pace um, with a lot of the innovation and the creativity. So it's a, it's a, um, it was a nice kind of trip through history to, to see where we are now. So, and Susan on the, the next article is um, checklist, which I see you also wrote. I did. And I was interested to see, I mean, certainly I know your involvement with the, Air, with the Airman certification standards and an essential, an essential element of the Airman certification standards focuses on risk and risk management. Mm-hmm. And I see that the same overall concept of risk and risk management is now applied into this very topic of aircraft certification. Well, the FAA has gone overall to uh, across the board, not just with pilot certification, but as you see here too, with uh, risk-based decision-making and looking at uh, where, you know, the, obviously in the transport category airplanes, um, there are the guardrails have to be bigger, stronger, tighter, and there there is probably more prescription and will likely always be that way. But in what we're doing, the kind of work that we're doing, um, there, there are a couple things. One is that the risk of general aviation is a different risk picture. And so more kinds of innovation and creativity could be allowed. But but the other piece of what where the FA is going, we've talked about how long it takes to do rulemaking. Well, we all know that there are a lot of innovations out there that make aircraft safer, and you don't have to buy a new airplane to benefit from some of those things. You can retrofit, but retrofit has been historically so expensive because of the certification process that in in many ways, the the system we had was in some ways making the, the system less safe because you couldn't innovate. Um, so part of risk-based decision-making is opening the door to allow some updates and upgrades that will really benefit everybody, regardless of how old your airplane is. And, and you reference a few of the initiatives that have been in progress um, in, in this article. Certainly part 23 reform is big, but also um, I was reminded about the, just the situation with general aviation fuel and mm-hmm. that we're, we're the last remaining consumer of, of leaded fuel and the efforts to to drive some initiatives on that, um, as well as other things. So the, you um, point people to information on, on exactly. this, various websites for it, uh, for people who want to get more information. Well, for more information, and also if you're just looking for a quick um, guide to where you can get more on a specific topic, this is the place to go. And it's in keeping with the spirit, This the mission statement for this particular column is we're trying to help point people to FA resources, which your tax money's paid for. They're free. <laughs> Very good. Very good. 
On, on the next one, it's um, the title of the article. It's a very um, nice title about the quiet revolution. And it's really about, well, you know, what does part 23, you know, mean to, to the aircraft owner? And just for clarification, um, part 23 is for those aircraft that weigh less than 19,000 pounds and carry less than nine people. Um, aircraft that are larger than that, um, like the air, airline or air transport category are certified under part 25. So th what happened in part 23 that has really helped help shape the industry now? Well, it's that move from pr very prescriptive requirements to what you see right here. What are, what's the end state? What's the performance? What's the outcome that you want? Okay. And then, then we talk about a new term, which is similar to AMOC, but means of compliance, which, um, and, and there's some flexibility with that too, that they are a way, but not the only way to comply. So there, there are a lot of options. There's a lot of flexibility in part 23, which tries to, um, it, it establishes a framework for this is how, and, and by the way, part 23 is really about how new aircraft are designed and built. Um, mm -hmm. And as you'll see, we, we, we didn't forget about the existing fleet at all. We'll talk about some of the opportunities for that. But part 23 reform is really about letting um, manufacturers saying, this is how safe it has to be. Here's what we're looking at. And you tell us how you want to get there. And I think, uh, I think we're going to see some really exciting things. Well, and your, your third bullet point on that slide is, is very important too, because it, it shows that, the, that there's some flexibility that's being embraced in this entire process, that if a, if a previous um, MOC doesn't quite apply, then you can work on in another direction. Yeah, one of uh, my my former bosses uh, was really big on talking about. Uh, well, what uh, it, he he never wanted people to say just no. If if we if something doesn't work for the FA, we would say no because and explain why, which keeps the conversation going. But it also explains to somebody who's an applicant. Okay, well, if if this is what the reason is, let's talk about another way to get there. So it, it's all about trying to make sure that we're, the agency is open-minded and flexible and finds ways to get to where we all want to be, the safest possible airplanes with innovative designs. You talked about some other, other terms and other processes in, in, in this situation, and the next slide talks about NORSI. Yeah. And I have to admit that NORSI was not a term acronym, slogan, phrase that I was familiar with until I read through this. So I, I get the principle of it, but can you give us some more details on NORSI and how, it, how it's really helped um, streamline some of, the some of these issues for people who already have aircraft who want to add some other components to it? Yeah, this was a big deal. Um, NORSI really started, um, I, I think the, the, the big test case was angle of attack indicators. So yes. they've been out there and everybody there there's they they were really getting big in the experimental market and light sport market and say hey, you could you could put those on your airplanes but what about all the certificated aircraft so the yeah, FA started looking at it and um this is this is an acronym at least it's pronounceable unlike some waypoint names I can think of um, <laughs> yes. yeah I'm sure you've seen a few of those 
but non-required safety enhancing equipment. It's a policy and uh, the article talks about links. You can go to web pages, you can read the actual policy statement, you can do a lot of different things. But, but the whole idea is to look, allow, provide a means for safety enhancing equipment that is not required to be put on an airplane without being going through the whole certification process and STCs and all the other things that, that are so costly and cost prohibitive both for the manufacturers and for the owner operators of airplanes. So it really started with, um, it started with angle of attack indicators, but, but if you look at that third bullet there, um, traffic and terrain advisory systems are now included, uh, attitude, de altitude deviators, weather advisories, all kinds of equipment, and the list is growing all the time. So there, the web pages take you to the places where you can find out what's available, what you need to do, and how to move forward if you own an airplane or if you want to encourage somebody who owns an airplane to do something. Well, I remember walking the exhibit halls at the um, EAA convention in Oshkosh a few years ago, and if I remember correctly, it might have been five years ago that I first started hearing about angle of attack indicators several entrants into the market. Of course, it was the experimental market, but each year it's been more and more. And, in, and as you, as you've pointed out, it's not only devices like that, but other significant improvements to already existing aircraft seem to be covered by Norsi. Yeah. The, the list is, is pretty large. And on the angle of attack indicators, by the way, I just finished reading an article. I was on a long airplane ride recently and, I read an article about uh, an, one of the new airplanes. This is um, this is not so much Norsi, but part of the LSA, but the Icon A5 and how somebody, the, the writer was talking about learning to fly the thing and said, well, so what airspeed do I use? And the instructor said, white line. And the whole airplane is essentially flown using the angle of attack indicator. Mm -hmm. And white line was one of the, the key markings. And I thought, wow, that's a completely... It's, it's a different world. Well, and certainly on, on larger aircraft, angle of attack sensors are a key component, and the data from that um, is used to drive um, other information. So it's the same application using uh, a fairly simple sensor to actually improve safety. Yep. So, uh, so the, there, but there, there, as you saw here, there are a lot of things in addition to the angle of attack indicator was kind of the big door opener. Mm -hmm. Um, but there, there's a lot more out there now. And NORSI is even, even if you don't use the acronym, use the, check out the policy. Use the concept. Use the concept. Absolutely. Sure. Susan, let's have a look at the, at the next, um, transformation of certification and it, there's a recurring phrase throughout um, this issue, but also in this article, about adopting consensus standards. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means. So if you could help us out, that'd be great. Well, um, there are a lot of organizations that have, uh, or where there are a lot of industries where there, there are industry set standards for things. And ASTM was an organization, I think it, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you, you told me earlier what it stood for. I think it may just stand yeah, for society ASTM. Society of Testing and Materials, I believe. Yeah. But, but it's a standard-setting organization. And the ASTM consists of or brings together experts 
in the field who can, th these are the people who are on the front lines who can say, okay, this is what the standard ought to be. And by consensus, they reach standards. And then those come to the FAA for acceptance, not approval. There's a lot of legalistic terminology that, um, and the article explains a little bit of it, but essentially um, what, what this does, um, consensus standards are a faster way to get to a product. And it's one of the things that was, uh, th this was a real revolution in what we did in 2004 with the uh, light sport aircraft built to consensus standards, which periodically are revised and much quicker than we could do in rulemaking. And again, it's not less safe in, in many ways, I'd say, because it's somewhat more flexible um, and because these are really standards that are established by experts um, who get together and beat their heads against walls and maybe each other sometimes, sure. uh, but really come to the, to the agreement of this is what it ought to be. In fact, there's probably, you can make a case for saying it's improved safety because we're, we're able to have access to this technology sooner. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I think that when it says transformation of certification, that's what uh, the consent, the use of consensus standards and the light sport aircraft rule really did. Um, and that's one of the reasons where now, if you want to go get into flight training, you have lots of choices. You can choose between the new airplane and the newer airplane. So it's not the old and the older, but the new and the newer. But hey, you can still fly older airplanes if you want, and they're perfectly fine. Of course, yeah. In fact, I was at my, um, I drove by the airport that I first learned to fly at, which was in 19. Do you really want to admit that? <laughs> and the aircraft that I soloed in is still sitting on the ramp. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's, there's an application and market for this across a wide variety of aircraft. So, wow. Um, Legally Aloft is the next article, and it's written by your, your colleague, Paul Cianciola. And it's a very nice summary of the different types of, and not to play on words, types of uh, yeah. certificates concerning certification. So run us through that, please. Well, this one is one I, I would strongly encourage you to read up on um, because it was it was challenging to try to summarize all of the material that's in, that's in this article in a single slide. Um, as you said, it does go through a nice set of definitions. So we talk about what does a type certificate mean, and you'll see that on the slide. What mm -hmm. is a supplemental type certificate? Um, pro then there's most people are less familiar with the idea of protection certificates. But uh, that's about trying to make sure that, that airplanes that are, are produced in a consistent way, that every, every one that comes off meets the same standards. And then everybody knows what an airworthiness certificate is, but sure. we also know that um, an airworthiness certificate is kind of like a medical certificate. It's a piece of paper that's good when it's issued, but you have to, you have to keep the person and the airplane healthy on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Um, and that's what gets into some of the, the discussion here about repair and alterations and what those require. And again, there's, there's a ton of material in this article that um, e even if you don't need to be an expert in it, I think it's very helpful for pilots to be familiar with the terms and to know what is being discussed um, 
because we, we are, after all, responsible for, we're the final authority to the safe operation of the aircraft and knowing what some of these things mean is, is a piece of that. Well, and certainly for owner-operators, knowing what repairs and work are authorized is an yes. important part of, the, of ownership. And it's important to, you know, stay familiar with that. And Absolutely. This, this, there's some information that's uh, it's a good refresher for current owners. And it's some basic information if you're anticipating ownership about what you can and cannot do. So the next um, part of this, of course, aircraft are made of parts. And there's been a lot of discussion. Um, it's in various articles about... Um, the type of parts that can be used. And of course, approved parts are at the forefront of everything that is required by regulation. Um, but this article outlines and describes um, the actual definitions of not only approved parts, but also the unapproved parts and then a few others. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I think uh, surprises people who are new to aviation is the fact that pretty much every part on an airplane has a piece of paper attached to it. It essentially mm -hmm. has a birth certificate, and it has to be documented or it's not legal. And uh, yeah, that does bring the cost up somewhat. But but there's a reason for that. I, I you don't have to go very far to read stories about somebody who tried to, oh you know this is the same part I buy in the hardware store I can stick on an airplane. Yeah, exactly. But, the, but that's just not true. Simply because airplanes have to work harder in a different environment, airplane engines in particular, and um, there has been a lot of work that's gone into demonstrating that approved parts really can stand up to the punishment that they're required to take and that they won't let you down. And so um, if you're, if you are an owner and you're tempted to just go buy something cheaper and put it on the airplane because it looks the same, well, that's not only illegal, but it's not a safe thing to do. Um, but this also talks about the fact that you, you have suspected unapproved parts. That's a term that probably most people have seen. They may resemble approved parts, but they haven't been produced uh, by an approved method, or they just don't have the, the right documentation to demonstrate that. And there's an uh, advisory circular that, yep. that gives more information on that. Yep, there is. And we give the name of that advisory circular, the number of it, um, along with the name in this piece, and also contact information for the program office that the FAA has established to try to deal with the issue and help people deal with it. Um, because it's, it, it's complicated. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's certainly complicated for us as well. But it's awfully important to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Of course. One of the uh, featured columns in FAA Safety Briefing Magazine is called FAA Faces. And this one is about Earl Lawrence, who you're going to tell us a little bit about. But I noticed that with so many people at the FAA seem to benefit by having both pilot experience as well as maintenance experience. They seem to fit into this world very nicely. And, and Earl seems like he fits that exactly. 
Yeah, he's actually a repeat customer in this column. We don't do that very often, <laughs> but um, we we got him. So so some of you may know Earl from he's um, when I first met him, he was in the Experimental Aircraft Association. So he was one of the people who greeted the FA team at Oshkosh every year. And then we stole him and he came over and started working for the FA as the head of the small airplane directorate. And uh, that was when we featured him. It may have been the first time we did a production and certification kind of focused issue several years ago. And we featured Earl then because of, uh, and that's when I started to learn something about his background. Well, recently he, um, well, he moved from the trans with the small airplane directorate and he was running the UAS program office. So some of you in the drone world may be familiar with him from that, but now he is the director of aircraft certification service. So the whole enchilada. And uh, I think his background is both a pilot and a mechanic, you know, airworthiness, everything. Um, it, it all really comes together in the work that he's doing now. So part of the reason for this column is I, I think um, there, there are people who think the FA is just them and we are, so many of us are active members of the community. Um, Earl owns an airplane and goes out and flies it regularly. Um, I think he owns, it, I, he may own two, but I know of at least one. Um, and he and one of my bosses got together fairly recently to do the annual condition inspection on a light sport airplane. So these are the people that we try to feature here are colleagues who are just as much a part of the community as everybody else. Well, they're in, they're in the industry. So they, they're able to interface with a, with the pilot group and the mechanic group Yep, and bring what I would call real world information into the agency. And because they're, they're living it and part of it as well. Well, and one of the things uh, when, when we ask Earl, if we could, uh, twist his arm for the second time he said well yeah but i want to i want to focus on some different things and we said absolutely we don't want to repeat what we said about you last time <laughs> so one of the things that he really got into is you'll see on the third bullet um he wants to he's really big on leveraging the knowledge and experience of the people he calls the doers and even though i certainly think earl qualifies himself as a doer um, he's very conscious of the fact that, you know, those of us, no matter how much we're in the community on, uh, as a sideline, that those of us in the FA, we have other jobs during the day. And we recognize that the people who are in, out there day in, day out, um, they, they have a lot of information that we need to leverage. So he's, he's very conscious of that. And uh, I, I think if you haven't already seen him at some aviation event, you're certainly likely to. Well, and that, and that same philosophy certainly applied to the Airman Certification Standards effort, where you reached out to a large group of the industry to help help shape and define that. Well, and we're still doing that. In fact, we recently added balloon powered lift, um, light sport. We're doing we're we're trying to move into a lot of different directions and expanding our community to have that expertise. So exactly, that's the philosophy. Perfect. So you, you mentioned uh, just briefly about drones, and that is the subject of the next article in Drone Drone Debrief. And it's there's information about how this same philosophy about 
performance is now built into some of the initiatives for drones. And there's an NPRM out about how drone operators can operate at night. So it's interesting that this topic of certification and some of the changes is also applying to the very real and growing unmanned aircraft system. Well, it is. And I think the whole concept that we've been developing in the what you call the manned aircraft world or the traditional aircraft world, performance-based philosophy, it really has been applied uh, from the beginning or is being applied from the beginning in the UAS world or the drone world. Um, and as the the whole part 107 um, performance-based philosophy, as you see here, was baked into the approach. And now, um, if you haven't seen the February um, notice of proposed rulemaking, you can go look at that in the Federal Register or just Google. It's the easiest way to find it. Um, it's it's about finding out, getting, trying to figure out ways that you can manage the risk that's associated with some of these operations, um, but but rapidly expand as rapidly as possible, as safely as possible, because we know that um, drones are that that's kind of the fastest growing segment. Everybody's got something that they can use them for, and uh, wants to use them for, and we're trying to figure out how to make sure that we can allow as much as possible, as fast as possible, but while still being as safe as possible. Of course. It's a, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a really exciting field. The, the maintenance part of this is, our, is the favorite column, nuts, bolts, and electrons. Yeah. It really brought to light something that as a, I, don't, I don't own an aircraft and I don't work on aircraft, but I, I, as I read this, I thought, well, this seems obvious, but it really gave a, some interesting background on a fairly simple topic, and that is we've, we've all probably sat in general aviation aircraft and the seatbelts are a little bit worn out, so let's replace them. And it's not that simple. So this gives a lot of direction about uh, dynamic seat assemblies and the fact that if you're going to change seatbelts, it has to be done with consideration potentially not just of the seatbelt material, but how it integrates into the, into the entire restraint and seat system. Um, and it cites um, various um, regulatory um, references about exactly what you have to do. So well, I, I found that to be quite informative. Well, uh, actually, I learned a lot from this one, too, because um, I confess that the term uh, dynamic seat regulation was kind of new to me because mm-hmm. it's it seems like a funny mixture of terms, dynamic and seat. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, because the one is moving and the other is kind of still about keeping you still. But um, and by the way, that third bullet was not intended to be a pun, but I noticed that it sort of is. Um for but for proper installation, um, you just you really do have to make sure that everything works together, because um, the, these. I, I think the other thing I'd never thought of the seat restraint thing as being a system, but but it is, and it's like any system. If um, it's only as strong as the weakest link, and so you have to make sure that as this thing says, as this piece says that everything is properly set out. So in some ways, it may sound like it's a contradiction with what we're saying in the rest of the piece. We're talking about flexibility and 
what you, you know, innovation and things like that. And those are all good things, but there are some areas where you really do have to make sure you mind your P's and Q's, you know? For sure. Yeah. Um, Your colleague, Tom Hoffman, in the next article, Angle of Attack, um, addresses this entire concept of performance-based requirements to talk about um, what he calls crash worthiness and survivability factors. And um, there's four categories and four recommendations that are outlined. Um, again, this, this shows not only the work about the complete aircraft certification, but also the subsets related mm-hmm. to aircraft certification. And this is, of course, um, a huge one about survivability. Well, and this is this is another one where the FA is leveraging the uh, and using com- collaborating, communicating with the community. The GA Joint Steering Committee is a government industry group that was set up uh, quite a few years ago to look at ways to you know general a to, to try to improve general aviation safety. And this group has put together um, a lot of subgroups. Uh, there's a group that's looking at control flight into terrain. There's a group that looks at uh, I think that's looked at fuel exhaustion, but but this was one where they looked at crashworthiness and um, came up with what is it that you know what what are the things that so the worst happens what what is it that we can do to try to make sure that you still walk away um, and these are just like you said these are the four categories that they're looking at and they're talking about. Um, recommendations that could become the basis of consensus standards for new and better airplanes. So hopefully nobody ever crashes, but because stuff happens, um, mm-hmm. the idea is to make sure that the the airplane protects you as best that it possibly can. And cars have gone, cars have come a long way since then. When I was a kid, I'm sure we didn't have safety glass and Certainly, we didn't have airbags and shoulder and harnesses and all the other things that we have in cars now. So airplanes are catching up. Well, I remember, I suspect it was in the early 60s when the family's Ford Fairlane was retrofitted with seatbelts. Oh it didn't come standard, but we, we, we had it retrofitted with seatbelts, and that was quite the innovation at that time. So <laughs> lots of steps in the right direction for safety. Yeah, and airplanes are finally catching up, right? Absolutely. On rotorcraft, the vertically speaking, this really highlighted another application for NORSI. This article discusses um, recent helicopter-related rotorcraft accidents related to um, inadvertent contact with wires and other structures. Mm -hmm. And NORSI would be a mechanism to put that type of equipment to sense those elements in a helicopter relatively quickly. Well, exactly. And um, so, so what we've done with both drone debrief and vertically speaking is to try to make the point that the philosophy that we're talking about here, it, it's just it's not confined just to airplane fixed wing. It's also uh, rotorcraft and it's also drones. It's, this, is, this is across the board, across the agency. Um, and everybody's looking at the applications from their own particular p- 
perspective, in this case, looking at what are the what are some things that have been going on in the rotorcraft world and what could we do to try to mitigate those and how do we make that equipment available? Nor sees the nor sees the key. Indeed. Susan, your your next article is post-flight um, tradition and innovation. And there's a quote there from Winston Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill is one of my more favored statesmen and historical figures talking about um, tradition, innovation, and your article further addresses what we were talking about earlier, which is the rules that they're in place for a reason. You're, you're driving the safety of the industry. At the same time, however, um, we have to allow some way to change. So it's always a balance. But I, I very much enjoyed this article because, first of all, it quotes Churchill, and then it sort of <laughs> discusses the dynamics that the industry is dealing with. One of the things that you mentioned is, you know, the FAA has to be balanced um, and trying to find the right balance for safety. And in my work in the um, as a training manager at an airline and also I get involved with writing procedures, I, I'm often struck by the same concept of balance. We, because of the amount of data available to us through various digital means, there could be a reaction to try to create a procedure for everything. And the problem, of course, is that if you over-proceduralize anything in aviation, your level of compliance will go down. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you don't have any established procedures or in the case of the FAA, you know, established rules, then you'll have no standardization. So anytime we look to make a change in how we operate, we look at that balance about compliance versus over-proceduralization versus standardization. Yeah, this was fun. I, I, well, actually, this is probably one of my favorite columns to write because I get to try to wrap up the issue. But, but this one uh, gives me a little bit more leeway, gives me uh, some credit, uh, some ability, uh, an opportunity to try to be creative um, mm-hmm. and innovative, I guess I would say. Um, but uh, I, I, I do a lot of reading. I try to read a book a week and it kind of ranges all over the map, but I, I stumbled on Tom Standage. And if you haven't read any of his works, they're really fun. Um, he's got one on um, writing on the wall. The fact that social media is not exactly a new thing at all, um, that, that human beings have been doing these things forever. Um, and he has one about the telegraph being the Victorian internet. And I think that was the one I had just finished when I was reading this. And you think you read it and think, wow, what human beings haven't really changed very much. And, and I had a, a piece in there. The fact that as pilots on the one end, we want newer, better and different. We also don't want to change. We want everything to be just the same and familiar. Um, I know that, uh, when glass came out, there were pilots who were grousing, well, you know, you know, and now nobody can imagine flying without it. Well, I think that VORs, when they came along, probably had the same reaction. And so, so it's, it's a funny thing that on the one hand, we want to newer and better. And on the other hand, we, we seem to be wired to resist change. And part of what that led me to think is that just like you were saying, a lot you you build rules and procedures as guardrails, and that has to be the tradition. And some of that has to stay, 
but you can't stay there. You have to still be open to looking at a better way to do things. Of course. And uh, it's, I, I think what the FA has been trying to do is, is to thread the needle, figure out what that balance ought to be, but not well, by but ourselves working very much with the community to do it. I was reminded, you reminded me of a conversation I was having with a pilot one time about new technology and moving map technology and how that was such a, a, a good thing to have in the flight deck. And, and he, his response was, yeah, I know all about moving maps. That's when the road atlas falls off my knee. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, there, I remember several years ago uh, when I first came to the FAA, uh, glass was new and there were some older pilots since retired actually, but, but there was sort of there, I heard some odd comments about how it was cheating to be using some of the technology that we have now. And another of my colleagues said, so what is it also cheating to have a reliable engine? Because there was a time when, no, there, there are, but, but every new technology of course brings us challenges. And we've written about some of the challenges that people flying with glass have, um, which, it's just a we 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 solve one problem and we create new ones and then we go try to solve those. That's right, Susan. The, the next column on is uh, from the federal air surgeon, um, Dr. Michael Berry, and he addresses something that's certainly on the rise in terms of discussion and popularity. Um, I don't have to have the television on very long before. I see uh, commercials in the local area advertising for CBD um, oils and the proposed benefits of that. But this is clearly, um, Dr. Berry goes on to say that it's the federal government is regulating the rules for pilots. And he further goes on to say that although the benefits of CBD oil are maybe not quite determined, what we do know is that you don't exactly know the content of what's in, in this and that uh, it's something to stay away from at this point from a pilot and FAA medical certification standpoint. Well, that's the bottom line for sure. And he, he also is very clear that there are no special issuances for conditions that have been treated with medical marijuana. I, th- I suspect that this column results from the fact that uh, they've been getting a lot of inquiries on the subject and it just um, it was the thing to address. So I think you summed mm-hmm. it up pretty well. Uh, pilots, in, this is not something that uh, that mixes well with pilots. No. And the, and the next article is on arthritis. And I, I think I read something about it's common over 50. So I fit into that. And I fit into having a little bit of arthritis myself, as do a number of people. There's several types of arthritis, but the most common one is just the one that we all know pretty well, which is osteoarthritis. It's manageable. Um, the, the key point in that article though, is that, um, there's certain pain medications that are certainly not authorized, um, and are not approved, but in general, you know, the recommendations are stay active and, and just, um, just manage it. Well, just manage it. And also that, uh, to be aware that there are criteria that if there is a type of arthritis that might be subject to special issuance, that uh, here there are criteria, and some of them fall into what they call CASI, the conditions that um, mm-hmm. AMEs can issue. And your 
the, the next issue or the next column on ATIS is, is a bit of summary of just sort of recent news articles and, and sort of what I would consider hot topics. Um, the videos, uh, Safer Flying in 57 Seconds, there's, there's links to those that all have very good information and then a few other um, items that are, you know, covered as a part of your regular features. Yeah, and one is the drone ID marking change. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's some about the FAGA survey. If you get a survey, take it, that sort of thing. So this is, this is uh, just our attempt to do quick blurbs to round up some of the things that maybe don't merit a full article. And I, I noticed I enjoyed the uh, little snippet on the uh, clearance relay initiative as well about obtaining clearances. So that's it's certainly streamlining, you know, how we used to do it. More innovation. <laughs> that's right. Um, what's the honor role or the role of honor about, Susan? So, uh, well, every year, uh, this is something I aspire to someday, the Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award and the Charles Taylor Master Mechanic Awards. Those mm-hmm. are for 50 years of accident-free service or uh, flying in the case of the Wright Brothers Award. Um, we could not, so rather than try to, to recognize each one when they come along, one of the things that we do on an annual basis is just do a wrap-up to print the names and recognize people who've achieved that. So I, I hope we can both get there. How, how does somebody get nominated? What's the process for well, that? Um, you, you, you pretty much apply for it yourself or somebody can nominate you, but uh, it does require supporting letters from people who know you. And what the FA will do is uh, that goes to the flight standards district office and they'll put together a, uh, what's called a blue ribbon package. It's, it's all very carefully vetted and it's run through the FA safety team. And uh, the article, I believe, has a link if you're looking to get more information about it, or you can certainly Google it and find out uh, if you want to nominate somebody or if you are close to qualifying yourself, then that's how to go about it. Okay. Well, Susan, as we start to wrap this up, there's a number of places to to read and and find FAA Safety Briefing Magazine, uh, downloads, mobile links. Um, We also archive the issues. And, of course, we can get a subscription, you know, a a print copy through the government bookstore. Yeah, you can. Um, And uh, I tell people a lot. My mother still does that. So, um, yeah, there are are a lot of electronic formats. One of the things that we're looking at right now is uh, period every few years we look at redesigning the magazine to try to make sure that we keep up. And we're in the process of doing some of that right now. And and some of the the design that we're moving toward is to try to make sure that we're as mobile-friendly as possible because I know that I live on my iDevices, my tablet, my phone, and we know that other people do too. And we're trying to make sure that our content is as friendly for that. It, it goes wherever you do and whatever format you care to use. So sure. I think we've been between that and social media that uh, this magazine team has been kind of at the forefront and some of these things in the FAA. So we're very proud of that. Well, I know your, your colleague, Paul Cianciola does an outstanding job with social media efforts. So it's a, it's a great way of continuing the awareness um, the next slide is just a summary of some of the archived editions that are available to see. Yeah, um, and they're free. Go download them if you if you can't find a paper copy. They're they're there for you to get in all of those formats that we've just talked about. 
And there's a new thing that we have about the archives. There's podcasts now available. Um, it, the slide indicates, you know, how to how to locate this. You can find the link on FAASafetyBriefing.com or search iTunes or your podcast provider for aeronautical proficiency training. Yep. And I know that you often get feedback. And how, do. how does somebody send feedback? A variety of ways. Safety briefing at FA.gov. We have a mailbox. Uh, we interact with people through social media, Twitter, um, Facebook, and the Facebook group now that we have. And uh, you can also just scan the QR code and go what we call VFR direct to our mailbox. So lots of ways to reach us. So let's talk about the next issue, which is the July-August issue. And normally we have pictures of you and I on this slide at this point. Um, but now I see cheese in the shape of Wisconsin. So several things come to mind. And what, 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 uh, what can we look forward to? Well, I thought you might enjoy that since you're from Wisconsin and cheese head stuff is pretty common there. It's our um, life. Yeah, it's our life. Um, so the, the theme for the next issue is safety culture, promoting a safety culture. And it suddenly dawned on me, well, people culture cheese. And uh, I, I found the Wisconsin cheese because, hey, Oshkosh is coming and it is the Oshkosh issue. But, but also, um, some people may be familiar with the James Reasons model, the, the Swiss, Swiss cheese, cheese model. Lining up and trying to make, or not trying to make sure. So we're going to be looking at a lot of different angles of what safety culture is. And I'll give you a little hint. I actually wrote an article, me, who avoids dirt no matter what. I wrote an article that talks about um, cultivating and yeah, really drawing parallels between agriculture and safety culture. Um, you'll just have to wait and see how that turns out. Sounds great. So Once again, uh, we, we haven't set a date for the broadcast yet, but stay tuned because we will. Well, it'll be announced in, in email and other editions. So one, once again, we're able to offer wings and AMT credit by following the, the links. And to get yeah. through the um, to get through the quiz, just uh, get a print copy, right? Yep, get a print copy. Uh, most of it, I think, uh, you can you can answer based on this. But I really think that for some of the articles, particularly legally aloft, uh, by all means, take a look at it. There's great information in there, and we aim for these to be references. Um, so they're they're shelf stable, as one of my colleagues puts it. We try to make sure that this this is not just a current thing, but a reference material as well. And go, going back and and looking at some of the archived editions is a great way to uh, refresh our memory on some things. So, Susan, Absolutely. it's been been nice to work with you again. And, Likewise, uh, we we will look forward to seeing everybody in July. In July, we're probably sometime right before Oshkosh, and you'll see. All about the cheese. All right. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Good night, Thanks everybody. Everyone.